So my, the title of my message is The One True God. And that is a painting by a friend of many of us, David Nyquist. I just thought it was so cool. It's, it's called Before We Were Here. It's an abstract art piece. He's, he's, he loves Jesus, and it's, it's that, has that sense of mystery and creation going on. God put eternity in all of our hearts. This is from Ecclesiastes. I have seen the God-given task with which the sons of men are to be occupied. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts. See that? Eternity in my heart. Yeah, he's put eternity in all of our hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from the beginning to the end. So we have that sense of eternity in us, in us as humans. And that's why death is just so wrong, isn't it? It's just so shocking. We can never get over it. Even when our dogs or cats die, it's just, it's just so wrong because that sense of connection just feels like it's supposed to go on forever, huh? The relationships, those life-giving relationships, and our our relationship with our Father and Jesus and Holy Spirit. Solomon goes on and says, "I know that nothing is better for them than to rejoice, rejoice, and to do good in their lives, and also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy all the good of his labor. It is the gift of God." So God put eternity in all of our hearts, not just, not just the Jews, not just the Christians, everybody. This is a very familiar passage for many of you from Genesis 12. You'll notice if you're looking on the screen, there's a little dotted line between what the, most of this passage and the last part, and I'm going to talk about why. There's a kind of a demarcation there. Now the Lord said to Abram, Get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, this is the bottom line, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I've been reading this book again, and we'll be talking a lot about it, Eternity in Their Hearts by missionary Don Richardson. And he makes some really good points and some things he heard from Dr. Ralph Winter from the U.S. Center for World Missions. That last line would not be normal in the cultures of Abraham's day or Abram's day. The local deities might promise to bless a tribe. You know, there'd be tribal deities. But what local tribal deity would say, hey, I want you to be a blessing to all the families of the earth? That's not, that would not be normal, right? That would, that's totally outside of the box. And you could think of this as one of the, it's probably one of the first uh, mission statements, the, lo, the last line. 
and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I'm not sure whether Abram or Abraham was particularly point, uh, paying attention to that part. He was probably mostly going, I don't have any children yet. What's going on? But, but that, was all, that was part of God's plan from the beginning, that there would be a way for all the families of the earth to be blessed. And we are, if we read the book of Hebrews, we have all been grafted into Abraham's family. Yay. So we get all those promises and blessings because of our faith in Jesus. And we also get that same charter to be a blessing for all the families of the earth. And God is doing that in all sorts of ways. The one true God, the Father of all, is working at all times in all people to help them draw close to him. I want to read a scripture from Acts 17, which is, if you remember, when, when Paul was wandering around Athens and he noticed all these altars, including an altar to an unknown God. And uh, he's been invited to go up and address the, these, these folks that sit around and philosophize in their spare time on Mars Hill. And Paul is saying to them, Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, the altar to the unknown God, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made of hands, nor is he worshipped with man's hands, as though he needed anything. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood or one race every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined, this is really interesting, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they may seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far away, far from each of us. That's a really powerful and mysterious passage, isn't it? That God has decided, has determined our, our, you and me and everyone else on the earth, their pre-appointed times and the boundaries, like where they're going to be. Sometimes he moves those boundaries. Sometimes he moves us across the country or across the world, but he's part of that move as well. That they, that everyone on the earth may seek the true God, the one true God, in the hope that they might grope for him and find him. And he's not far away from any of us. For in him we live, I love this, we live and move and have our being. We live and move and have our being in, in you, Jesus, in you, Holy Spirit. We live and move and have our being. We're not here by ourselves. And also, some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Now, in this book, I'm not going to... It's a great story. I'm not going to share it because it would take too long tonight. In this book, the author, Don Richardson, using historical sources, actually 
tells us the story of why that altar to the unknown God was there. And it involved a, a prophet from Crete who actually did this experiment to see what this unknown God wanted. And um, anyway, the, the prophet's name was Epimenides, whom actually Paul quotes in other times at other places in the Bible. So very interesting. In this book and other sources, we've, we can find that many people groups have kept alive the memory of a benevolent creator God. Many have yearned to find a way to reconnect with the true God, with the one true God. There were even prophets in some of these people groups who foretold, foretold how God would be bringing strangers to tell them how to reconnect with him. It's really moving. There's many, many, many stories in this book, Eternity in Their Hearts about that. And <clears throat> this, this is a controversial subject. The, many anthropologists were, were taught by a man named Tyler that uh, because, because they started with an atheistic worldview and perspective that, thought that God wasn't real, so they assumed there was some kind of evolutionary steps, like some kind of movement over time from thinking there were tree spirits and spirits of the land and then kind of moving, moving up, evolving, if you will, into uh, a pantheon of gods and then maybe, you know, kind of an even higher level would be a, a, a monotheistic culture. But they saw that as kind of, and then I think from their perspective, and atheism would then be the highest um, evolution, if you will. Uh, but the truth is that there are many, many studies showing that people groups actually started with a high connection with this, this God who lived in heaven, who, we, who they shouldn't, they, and they knew they shouldn't come up with images of this God. This God should not, you should not make, try to make images of this God. <clears throat> Anthropologist William Wilhelm Schmidt, the author of a 4,000-page treatise called The Origin and Growth of Religion, and more re- recently, Don Richardson, this guy I was talking to you about in the eternity in their hearts, documented this fact in hundreds of cultures they studied. They discovered that the religion of some of the most ancient cultures were monotheistic and practiced little or, or no form of animism or magic. In almost every culture around the world, the religion of a particular culture began with the concept of a masculine creator God who lives in the heavens He provided a moral law by which people would enter into a relationship with him. This relationship was broken when people were disobedient. And as the relationship deteriorated, the people distanced themselves from its creator and their knowledge of him faded. As the civilization moved further away, they began to worship other lesser gods in their search to survive in a world filled with spiritual forces. They they desired power to manipulate the forces and thus there was an increase in the use of magic. So rather than starting, you know, low and then kind of evolving, everyone, there's evidence in a lot of cultures that they started with an understanding of this one true God who lived in heaven. And interestingly enough, many also have histories of a flood, for example, in their their background. 
and even different stories of some, something like Adam and Eve. So I'm going to tell you about one, of, one such people group, the Santel. In 1867, Norwegian missionary Lars Skefrud, Skefrud and his colleague Hans Borison found a 2.5 million people group called the Santel living north of Calcutta in India. When they explained the gospel, a man named Colleen explained, exclaimed, what this stranger has been saying proves that Thakur Jul has not forgotten us. Our forefathers knew him long ago. Lars asked, since you know about Thakur Jul, why don't you worship him? In other words, they're... they're um, the god they used to worship, who lived up in the sky, they named him, they called him Thakur Jew. And the missionary was saying, well, why don't you worship him anymore if you know about him? For centuries uncounted, Santel children were hearing their parents explain, oh, if only our forefathers hadn't made that grievous mistake, we would still know Thakur Jew today. But as things stand, we lost contact with him. He has probably written us off as unworthy people and won't have anything more to do with us because our forefathers turned their backs on him at that long-ago crisis in the mountains. So I'm going to explain a little. So you wonder, well, what happened in the mountains, right? Are you curious? How many people are curious? <laughs> what happened? This man, Colian. Uh, explained long, long ago the genuine God created the first man, Haram, and the first woman, Ayo, and placed them far to the west of India in a place called Hihiri Pipiri. They were tempted to make an offering to a being named Lita. Much, hap- much happened after this, including a version of the corruption of the flood and of the corruption in the flood. A branch of mankind who became the Santel continued eastward from forest to forest until they encountered high mountains. So they were, they were migrating eastward from where they started. And they got to these high mountains, and the people became faint because they couldn't find a way through. And all they, although they still knew Thakur Jiu, they made a covenant with the Maruburu, the spirits of the great mountains, saying, O oh, Maranburu, if you release the pathways for us, we will practice spirit appeasement when we reach the other side. So in other words, they made deals with local deities. And Skefsrud had thought it strange that the Santel name for wicked spirits meant literally the spirits of the great mountains, because there are no mountains near where he found them. There was all a plain. Very shortly after they made this covenant, they came upon a passage, which was the Khyber Pass we call today, in the direction of the rising sun. And from that day, the people felt obligated to fulfill their forefathers' ancient oath. And it seems like that happened to a lot of people groups, something like that, where they started out knowing the true God, but things happened and they decided they have to, had to appease local, local spiritual beings. And that's still going on today, isn't it? 
Ja. There are many people groups mentioned in these books. I encourage you to be curious and read about them. I just wanted to mention a few things real quickly. There are records that the Chinese worshipped the creator god named Shang-Ti, Lord of Heaven, as far back as 2,600 years before Jesus walked the earth as a man. 2,600 years. Wow. Sadly, eventually... This worship of Shang-Ti was limited to just the emperor and then just one time a year. And they still have this amazing temple for worship of Shang-Ti in China. And there's a really interesting book that I've loaned to folks, somebody else, and I forgot who I gave it to, called uh, Finding God in Ancient China that talks a lot about much more. Also about, interesting, even the, um, the writings, the, um, the pictographs that are used in Chinese some of them, when you look at the meanings of, of the, um, the pictographs about Adam, about this, there's one that actually kind of shows eight people in a boat, which would be Noah. Uh, there's also one about a lamb being sacrificed. There's all sorts of interesting connections between the true God and the Chinese people, which I think is really cool. I want to read you another quick story of of a people group in Ethiopia. Now, I'm doing all of this because um, we're to be a blessing to all peoples, right? All people groups, all nations. And this is, in part, God's doing that. God's doing his part, and he's also inviting us to do our part. And this is an example of where both came together. A man named Warasa Wang, Wang? I'll, I'll say that, Warasa Wanj, of the Gadeo people in south-central Ethiopia. Warasa cried out to Magano, the creator, to reveal himself once more to the Gadeo. They had fallen away from Magano and sacrificed to, this is a really interesting name, Shaitan. Who might that be? Whom they, did, whom they feared and did not love. They sacrificed to Shaitan instead. In a vision, after Warasa had cried out, he saw two white people, two white men, erecting flimsy shelters for themselves under the shade of a long sycamore tree near Dilla, which is a town on kind of the edge of the Gadeo people. Later, they built permanent shiny roof structures. So this is all in a vision. Then he heard a voice say, These men will bring you a message from Magano, the god you seek. Wait for them. In the final scene of this vision, Warasa saw himself removing the center pole of his own house. Then he carried out to town and set it up next to the shiny roof dwellings. In other words, he picked up his home and moved it near where these strangers had had, uh, put up their dwellings. And this this was symbolizing of moving his life. The center pole of your house was like symbolic of your life, the kind of a, the structure of your life. He was, he was making camp with these strangers because they were going to tell about how to reconnect with Magano, the creator. Isn't that encouraging? God set it up. God sent a vision to this man that was crying out. And a lot of times we, we hear about people 
who cried out to God, and God answered. Abraham cried out to God, and God answered. Moses cried out to God, and God answers. How many of you have cried out to God, and he's answered you? Yeah. Thank you that you are close to each one of us. I'm going to show you a video um, about the Yanomamo people. They are, um, they are a people group that live in the Amazon rainforests in Venezuela. And they're, uh, they're called very primitive. Uh, the stories are amazing. And part of why I wanted to share this with you is it really makes, it makes very real, made very real to me at least, the spirit world. So, uh, and then after this clip, which will be short interviews, then we're going to hear uh, the shaman and his tr- a translator for the shaman, a shaman named Chief Shufut, who met the one true God. That's Chief Shufut there, also known as Batista. The reason a shaman chooses to have spirits is because the spirits make a Yanomamo fierce. They claim to be healers. The spirits are human-like creatures, but they carry the characteristics of the animals they represent. They are very beautiful creatures, and they speak the Yanomamo language. Children are also chosen by logs or trees or animals talking to that person. But it's not really the animal talking. You're hearing the voice of the spirits. If you're a young man and you're going to become a shaman, the animals lose their fear of you and you become a very good hunter. As the animals talk, you become terrified. But the adults tell you, it's just a Hecula spirit. Don't be afraid. I desire to have my own spirits so I could be a protector for my people. Even though they promised us all this over and over, we found ourselves living meaningless lives. We continue to suffer. Many times, as a shaman, you try to heal this child. You told the women, don't cry. I am certainly a healer. But many times a child would die, and you knew you lost when your demons started to wail. And in spite of all the spirits we had, we lived in constant fear of the spirits. As shamans, the one we fear the most is the one who lives in the heaven of heavens. We called him the enemy God. Our spirits were terrified of him. All of us shamans and all of the spirits fear the spirit who lived way up in the heaven above the heavens. You could not go there, but you might be able to see it from a long ways off. But the thing that is most amazing is that none of the spirits that we had could make it into his presence. That's why we believe that he was the enemy spirit. We believe that he was the one, this enemy spirit, up where the angels are, 
who was sent to eat the souls of children, and so we believe that he was the one who was responsible for the deaths of many of our children. Shaman is somebody who can work voodoo, who can work black magic. He's somebody in contact with Satan and his demons, and, and a shaman, most of them who, who are real shamans, are people who really, really have the, uh, a supernatural power from, from Satan. They'll tell you that everything that they know, everything that they do, Satan taught them. They had an awareness of spirits, probably much more better than what we do. Than the American world. The American world tends to think that it's all just, you know, something out there, the boogeyman at night or something. These guys have no no problem believing and understanding the spirit world. It's a deceptive power, and it's a destructive power. Every shaman will tell you that his demons promised him the gift of healing, but my demons are happier when I'm trying to kill someone. Now they'll tell you, every shaman I've had, every shaman I've ever talked to will tell me that. I have I can heal, but my, my my he calls them his children. My children are happier when I'm trying to kill someone. Nobody dies for just any reason. You know, the snake was sent by somebody who sent the snake. You know, the fever came from somebody who sent the fever. Because you might have your your spirits, but the guys in the next village have theirs, and you're always sending your spirits and their spirits back and forth to do voodoo-like stuff on each other. It's sort of a contradiction in itself, you know, a, a shaman becomes a shaman because he wants the gift of healing the children in his village, but every shaman that I know of strives for the name Ihiruwarewa, which is, the literal translation is child eater, because they believe that they're given the power to destroy children, and, you know, they can destroy the soul of the child so the child will die. Every shaman will tell you that he's guilty of killing kids in his own village, that he can't control his power. He just blames it on somebody else. You know, he blames it on an enemy shaman. They have no friendly spirits, really. Um, their own spirits that they have living in them are friendly to them and only them, not anybody else. Um, so to talk about the supreme being that is a spirit and that loves them would blow them away. That was a village called Aratateri, and I just wanted to be in villages where no other missionary had ever gone. When we were near in the shaman, you could hear the shamans chanting. I think there were visitors from other villages, and so when shamans get together, they usually have some big kind of chanting and doing spiritual things together, you know. They were actually trying to heal a sick person. When we walked into the village, it was like somebody turned off a switch. Um, they just quit their witchcraft, it just the chanting, everything stopped. And we were surrounded instantly with guys with machetes and axes and bows and arrows and yelling and screaming like they do. And uh, 
We spent the night in the village, and the next morning I got up and I went over to the part of the village where the, where the old shaman, the, the guy who actually, they would have called him not only the shaman, but the bodu omu, which in uh, the literal translation of a bodu omu is the one who lives with us. I sat down in the hammock, and I'm talking to him, and uh, we were talking about stuff, and for some reason I mentioned the word Dios. You know, like I want to tell you about Dios or something. I use a Spanish word. And uh, he got really excited. He said, I know who you're talking about. And uh, he said, you're talking about the enemy God. Uh, he said, he's the greatest of all the spirits. You know, he said, there's no one else like him. He, he is, he is the, the most powerful of all. And he said he lives up in the up in the heaven of heavens, up in the Duku Duku Misi is how he said it. And uh, he said where he lives, he said there's a crystal clear river flowing. It's called the Wararai'u. And Wararai or Wararau is what they'll use for the word for a glass, you know, a clear glass. And uh, he said if you could just drink of that water, you would never die. You'd never get sick. He said, there's fruit trees up there that bear all the time. He said, there's just, there's fruit all the time. And those fruit, if you ate of the fruit, you, he, he not only said you wouldn't only be hungry, he said you would never, ever get sick. And he said, there's, there's, there's beings up there that are making noise all the time. He said, it's a noisy place. It's a happy place, but it's a noisy place. He said, there's no darkness. There's no sickness. There's no hunger. There's no death. And I said to him, Shoabe, how do you know that? And he said, well, my children, my demons, my hekra, have showed me this place from a long ways off. And they showed me all that he has, the beauty of what he has. And he said, but he won't share it with the Yanomami. He hates the Yanomami. So in other words, Satan showed him the truth, but then twisted it into a lie, you know, because we know that God does love the Yanomami, that God does want to share that with the Yanomami. And the enmity is really between God and Satan, not God and the Yanomami. And I'm sitting there taking this all in about, you know, the shaman and about, the, about God. And, you know, I'm thinking, boy, this guy's read Isaiah, you know, because it sounded like, you know, uh, some of the portions of Isaiah talking about heaven. And, and then he, he turned to me and he looked me right in the eyes and he said, and you have his, you have he said, you have his spirit living in you. And, it, you know, I'm 17 years old, sometimes even wondering whether I was even saved because I wasn't walking with the Lord. I knew that. When he said that to me, you know, when he said, and you have his spirit within you, I said to him, I said, Schwabe, how do you know that? And he said, well, yesterday when you came in, because of God's spirit being in you, because is there, the enemy God is there, all of our heck what I left, they're outside the village wanting to know when you're going to leave so they can come back. It, it was probably the most humbling experience in my life because I remember I just, um, on the way back to the boat, it was like a two-day hike back to the boat, and I just wept most of the way, you know, and just realizing that God had really sealed me with His Holy Spirit, that God's Holy Spirit living within me didn't hinge on me, it didn't mean whether I was obedient, whether I was walking with the Lord the way I should. It didn't mean uh, God didn't, didn't limit, limit what He was going to do in my life to me being the Christian that I was supposed to be. That he had, he had sealed me with His Holy Spirit. He had put His Holy Spirit within me. 
and it didn't depend on me, it depended on him. God, hope you're encouraged. And uh, we're about to hear an audio, actually from, of all places, Focus on the Family, many, many years ago. Uh, they replayed a, um, an interview that was at a local chapel in Colorado Springs uh, with Chief, Shoe, Chief Shoefoot Batista, the first guy you saw in this and he's kind of giving a short version of his testimony. Um, but I wanted to clarify something. Uh, earlier on, um, Batista was saying they thought that the enemy god was the one who was actually stealing the children's, ch- children away, uh, eating, the, eating the children. And what was actually happening is after these shamans would use their, or be used by their, their demons, to kill children in other villages. That's what they did. They, but they mentioned here that the, the shamans knew that their spirits were actually killing children in their own village and they couldn't stop them. It was just so horrific. Uh, well, what they saw was they would see these two shiny beings sometimes carrying um, the souls and spirits of these, these babies to, to heaven. They thought they were going to eat them there, but they were, they were bringing them to God. So I wanted to be clear about that. Yeah. So put on your seatbelts. Another, another wild ride's about to happen, but it's really encouraging. Hiring to hear it again. So I guess we'll just step aside and let Chief Shoefoot and his interpreter, Mr. Gary Dawson, now take center stage on today's Focus on the Family. I'm here, and I'm from a long ways off. I'm a Yanomama, and I call you people Nabas. I'm a Yanomama, and, and I don't live like you live here. Our life is very different. Where I live is a very vast and empty jungle. It's a very difficult jungle, a very, a very hard jungle to survive in. There's snakes and all kinds of insects. There's danger everywhere. And I live in, in a lot different buildings than this. But I'm happy to be here because I know that you are my brothers and my sisters in Christ. My family and are very far away off. And even though I don't know what it's like to fly and I'm scared, I, I flew here anyway. <laughs> I want you to know that at one time in my life I was a very wicked person. I was a person that didn't know what it was right to do what was good. I was taught by my fathers and their fathers before him in a way of life that was destructive to my people. And some of you probably have read about us. 
But I'm here to tell you that without, without the great spirit that has set me free, there is no hope for Yanomam. The Yanomama people will never be delivered without this great spirit's help. I was a person who was bound in terrible bondage. I was all, everything that I did had me in terrible bondage to, to Omawa, to the spirit of evil. I was trained by my, my people to be a shaman. And the things that we did was to destroy our own people. Our warfares, our bow and arrows, our club fights, our chest poundings, our stealing women from other villages. Those things were destroying my people. I'm a person that knows what it really is like to be at war. I'm a person that knows what it's like to have clubs beat my body. And that's how a Sianomama live, and many of my people are still living today. My fathers decided that I would be a shaman because the spirit world was talking to me. The spirit world was talking to me through animals, and the, the, my elders of my tribe decided when I was a small child that I would become a shaman. And so they began to blow drugs up my nostrils. Many days they would blow drugs up my, my nose. They wanted me to be a shaman so that I could defend the people of my village. They told me that I would be the healer, I would be the protector. But I, I found out that my life turned out to be a life of bondage. They, for many, many days, they would blow drugs into my nose. And my head was throbbing all the time. Many, many days, blowing this drugs up my nostrils. And they wouldn't let me eat. I had to fast the whole time. They even, they even gave me no water at all until I was so messed up that I, I couldn't hardly even think anymore. And they began to teach me the chants and the ways of the outside world. And I passed many, many days doing this. And I almost died of hunger. I became very weak, very skinny. And at the end of that time, they told me that I had made it. They told me, now we have no more to train you. You now have to chant by your own self. You have to take the drugs by yourself and chant to the spirit world by yourself so that they will come to you. Never be silent at night. Chant all night long to the spirit so that they will come. And so at night I would chant and I would chant and I would chant and I would chant and chant. After many, many days, the spirits came to me in many different forms. They came and they began to live within the house of my heart. They were beautiful creatures. They promised me everything as they would come and live within me, what they would do and how they would help me. And I thought, this is the happiness that I've been searching for. And I thought, there's so many of them now, I will be the most powerful shaman of all. And they began to live within me. 
And so many of them lived within me that my the, the light no longer existed within me. I was completely dark. But I began to hate my people. And I began to hate the ones that I was supposed to heal. And one time my uncle, my uncle who was very dear to me, got sick. And I took drugs and chanted for him. And I chanted for him, but I realized that my spirits were, were killing him instead of healing him. And he finally said to me, don't chant for me anymore. I'm dying and it's your spirits that are destroying me. And I became very sad and I realized that I had been lied to. And he died. And I wanted to get rid of these spirits, but I wasn't able to. And I thought to myself, what am I going to do? Maybe I need more spirits. Maybe I need other spirits to help me control the ones that I have. And another adult in my village got sick, and I chanted for him, and I called more and more spirits to live within me. And I chanted for him again. And I chanted, and I chanted, and I chanted for him. And I called to the spirits, and I, I begged them to help, to give me him. And all I did was become very tired. And in the spirit world, I saw my spirits were destroying this man again. And I was told that I'm dying, and your spirits are killing me. And I, I wanted to give up. I just wanted to throw away the spirits and quit being a shaman because they were destructive. And I wondered, how, how can I be set free from this? What am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this? And I realized that they were destroying me and also destroying my people. And they seemed so wise and so helpful and so loving at first until I realized that they filled me with hate for everyone. And I become more and more messed up in my mind and I begin to hate even my own family. But I was still considered, even with all of the mess up that I was in, I was still considered a very powerful person. And I began to search and I would roam the jungle searching for more spirits to help me control the spirits that I had. I even called other shamans to come and chant for me to help me to teach me how to straighten out my life, how to control the spirits that I had. And then I began to realize that they were in the same bondage that I was in. And this shaman that I had so much confidence in just told me to take more and more powerful drugs. So I did that, but it did not help. And I just, my head was hurting all the time. And I, I, the hate within me began to grow more and more. And I decided it was best for me just to die. But when I was living that kind of life, when I, when I realized now that they were out to destroy even me, when I was in complete and utter despair, 
when I finally had come to realize that I would never find anything to set me free. Everywhere I searched, there was nothing to bring me happiness and peace. I roamed the jungle looking for things that would, that would set me free. But I was just in despair. And I thought, well, I'll just roam out into the jungle and get lost out there and just die out there. When I was in that, tied up by Omawa, the spirit of evil, and I lived that way, I'll tell you how I was set free now. My friend's father, when he was a very small child, came to live in our village. And when I saw him, I thought to myself, what does this foreigner come for? He's just as poor as we are. And it scared me. But by that time, he knew a little bit of our language already. And when I, when I looked into his face, I saw a face of love and a face of peace and a face of joy, a heart that was filled with a joy that I did not have. And I thought to myself, why did he come? What, what, what's his reason for coming? He certainly didn't come to bring us food because he doesn't even have any food. And I looked at his small children and I could hear them crying at night because they were hungry. And we didn't have anything either and we were hungry and, and it made us sad because we weren't able to give them food. And my village was really saddened because his children were crying at night with hunger. But we ourselves as a village was, was moving and, and fleeing from raiders, so we were really hungry at the time too. But in spite of all that I saw, he loved us. And he came and he, he showed us, Yanomama, that he really truly loved us. And he saw the suffering and the misery that I was in. He saw the club fights and the fighting that we were in, how our children lived in fear. How our children would flee out into the jungle because of our fighting and our warfare. And he sat down with me and he said, My friend, I see the suffering and misery that you're living in. And at one time, I lived that way too. I too was in bondage the same way you are. But I've been set free by, I've been set free by a great spirit. The greatest of all spirits has set me free. And I become very excited in my heart because I knew who he was talking. My heart began to pound and my, my chest got excited and the spirits within me clamored for me to leave that this man was our enemy, that this man was going to destroy us. But as I looked into his face, I saw something that I really desired. And he told me about the great spirit. In my, in my language, we call the spirit that you call God, we call him Yaipara. 
And he told me about Jesus. And he told me that, that, that God sent his son to this earth to chop a trail for us to heaven. And I asked him, well, where does this being live? And he told me he lives in heaven. And I, re- I knew him. All of us shamans know him. We know the enemy. We know the enemy spirit that lives up there where it's beautiful, where there's beings praising him all the time. And I said, yes, I know him. I'm ex- I-, I know who you're talking about, but isn't he an enemy? Up where, up where all these beings in his presence are praising him. I know him, but he's an enemy. My spirits have told me that he's an enemy. But uh, I realize now that he was never an enemy. And I became a person that, that really began, became, I, I'm happy now for, that someone came and told me. I know now that if this person had never come, I would never have found Christ. And the spirits that I had in bond, had me in bondage, I would have never been able to break free. He told me to cry out to this spirit, that I had been crying out the spirits all my life, to cry out to this spirit. So I went off into the jungle by myself. There was a great big tree blown over by the wind, so I sat down on top of this tree. All by myself out in the jungle, I began to chant or talk to this spirit that I had so feared all my life. And I began to, I, I, was, I was in a battle with the spirits that were within me and the spirit that I was crying out to. I had tried by myself to make the spirits leave me, but they wouldn't. So I began to cry out to the spirit to set me free. And I said, if you're really there, I hear that you can set people free. I hear that you've sent your son. And I've seen the light of your love in the face of this man. You see the bondage that I'm in. If you can set me free, set me free. You see the spirits that have me in bondage. And I cried that out to this spirit. And I've been set free. I'm a person that now has been made alive. I was dead. I've been set free. I do want you to know, though, that the battle that I was in, the battle for my soul, as I was praying this prayer to the Great Spirit, I saw the chief of all of our evil spirits. He came running up to me. And he began to bind me in this cage. And he built a cage around me. He went back out into the jungle and he gathered incense. And he came to me and he grabbed me by both arms and began to dance with me. And he danced with me and he began to tell me, You're mine. I'll never let you go. He held incense to my nose and I began to give in to his power. And I began to to think, well, this is what I've hunted for. This is what I've searched for. This is the spirit that I've always needed. 
And he began to dance with me. But I cried out to God anyway. I cried out to the Spirit. And I saw a blinding bright light. And I felt someone grab me away and said, Get away from here. Leave him alone. He's mine. And Satan and the spirits within me fled. And they've never been back. And I will never return to the bondage that I was in. Never. I'll tell you a story. A few weeks ago, in one of our villages, one of our people were grabbed by an anaconda snake. There were four of them, or five of them, in the jungle hunting. I thought that was a lot to handle right there. <laughs> uh, the, the paraphrase was that... Um, this guy was being squeezed by an anaconda. They did have someone who had a dull machete, and they, they chopped and chopped and chopped and chopped on the anaconda until they broke its back, and the guy survived. And He didn't have any breath for a while, but eventually got restored. So that's the Reader's Digest version. <laughs> um, this reminded me of what Jesus said at the end of Matthew, after he'd been resurrected, he said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the people groups, all the ethnos, all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. Thank you, Jesus. That was a powerful story. A couple of more things. Uh, there were questions at this, um, this meeting they had with Chief Shufoot, and um, Gary Dawson was his translator, and one of them, they asked him, well, what do you notice about our culture? And um, he said, well, I've noticed that your Halloween, a lot of those things that are being sold, actually, uh, I've seen those spirits back in my, t- in my country. And he also asked, are children hurt during that time? And people said, yes, they are. He said, well, that's, that's what the spirits are trying to do. They're trying to hurt children. So I thought that was, that was, that was telling. Uh, other stories that Batista has shared is besides the sudden, there's always suddenlies and there's always processes with the Lord, right? How many of you know that? So there was a suddenly where he was set free from all those evil spiritual beings that had darkened his heart and free from the, uh, from the chief of all demons, who call, they called uh, Omala, I think. Uh, but there was still a process where he was, had to let Jesus be, be king of his life. He was sharing a, a wife with another man in the village, and Jesus said, you need to stop doing that. And he didn't want to, but he had to go through, the, go through letting go of what he wanted to do in order to, to follow Jesus. And there were other things as well. So there's always, I mean, it, it, it'd be nice if there was just a suddenly and that was it for our lives, right? <laughs> but there's, there's also... There's also things that Jesus is working with our heart about because he, he gives us free will. And we, we get to decide whether we're going to choose to trust him and go with him even when 
it costs us something. Um, so let me go back one. Yeah. So he's put eternity in our hearts. And because we're now part of Abraham's family and part of Father God's family, we're called to be blessings to all the people groups of the world. We are blessed, we are protected, and we're called to go out and, and, and share this with others, near and far. And because God has placed all of us here for right now, I propose to you that there are people in this area, there are people groups in this area that he may be calling you to. Um, even the people next door to us might be in deep darkness and we don't even know about it. Just like the darkness of, of this man, Chief Shufoot. So thank you, Jesus, that you are able to overcome even the most powerful darkness, even the most scary demons, and you call us yours. And you tell Satan to get away from us. We love you and honor you, Jesus. And um, I'd like to invite the ministry team forward. And uh, some of you may want prayer for healing, prayer for freedom, uh, want prayer with someone for situations in your life. Just encourage you to do that with the folks up here who are... Who are um, we put them through a process to, to make sure they're going to be safe people for you. Although there's a lot of other safe people out here as well. So I bless you. And if you have any questions about what went on tonight, you're welcome to come up and ask me, and I'll do what I can to help with that. Amen.